Let us open up with the word of Scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 12. Willie, what page is it on? 309. I don't have one of those Bibles up here this time for some reason. 276. 276. It's a lengthy chapter, but bear with me. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now behold the king who walks before you. And I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Or whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe that I might blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. Now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against his commandment, or the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against his commandment, or the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may say, Send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord 
and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil and asking to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you will still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the very word of God. <clears throat> Today, we are beginning a sermon series on the books of Samuel. And we're beginning in chapter 12, because this is the chapter that is a watershed moment in the history of Israel. It's their transition point from the period of the judges to the monarchy, which begins with Saul and then David. And this chapter also introduces the central themes and issues surrounding the anointed king. Who is the rightful king of Israel? For the church today, that provokes the same question. Who is your king? Are you your own king and ruler? Or is God your king? And I want you to think about that question throughout this message. We're dropping into the middle of the action of First Samuel, the last judge of Israel, as he gives his farewell speech to the people. So how do we get to this point in his ministry that he leaves his role as judge over Israel and hands over the leadership to Saul as king? <clears throat> At the miraculous birth of Samuel, his mother Hannah dedicated him to the Lord in gratitude that he would serve in the presence of the Lord forever. And so God raised Samuel up to judge and lead Israel. That is what he was raised up for. And the judges of Israel in their earlier history were often fierce military leaders whom God had appointed to deliver Israel from the, their oppressors and even restore them to the exclusive worship of the one true God. However, the judge previous to Samuel, Eli, was spiritually weak. Uh, to put it very uh, tersely. Eli was wicked, and his sons were wicked, and they were running amok in Israel, and Eli himself did not restrain them from their wickedness, stealing from the offering, sleeping with temple prostitutes, which is a problem in and of itself. And he didn't restrain them. And so the common refrain during the historical period of the judges in the book of Judges is certainly true of Israel during the time of Eli. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Samuel was then raised up by God, serving under Eli until God deposed Eli and his sons. In a great military defeat, the Philistines killed many Israelites, including Eli's evil sons, and took away the Ark of the Covenant. 
And here, this hor- hearing this horrifying news, Eli fell off of his chair and died. And so Samuel becomes the last judge of Israel. In this vicious cycle of rebelling against God, being oppressed by their enemies, crying out for deliverance, and then God sending them a deliverer, like Samuel. And for his whole life, Samuel faithfully served as a prophet judge. But when he became an old man, Israel demanded a king in his place. That was their reasoning. You're old. We want somebody young and fresh. And this cut to Samuel's heart. He had been a good leader. But God told him to obey the voice of the people and what they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God saw right through their sham excuse and reasoning to reject Samuel and demand a king. It was not that Samuel was being rejected or that he was old, although he was, but they were shrugging off God's authority. They were shrugging off God as their king. Despite earnest warnings from Samuel about the oppression and the power of kings over their people, taking men for soldiers, taking land and crops and flocks, Israel refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And in obedience to God, Samuel anointed Saul as the king. He said, all right, you're going to get a king. You get exactly what you're asking for. And so when Nahash attacked Israel... Saul was called upon to fight their battle for them, and the Lord gave him victory, and he gave glory to God for it. And after Nahash's defeat, all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord. This was his great coronation. Saul was victorious over the enemies. God has blessed his hand as our king. Let's crown him as a king, and let's party. And they made sacrificial offerings to to the Lord. And they had a joyful celebration like it was the first Independence Day. Well, it was for them, an Independence Day. But not a good one. Samuel stepped forward in the midst of this celebrating and all this partying to deliver a sobering message to the people. He dragged them to court for their wickedness because they demanded a king and rejected God. So, like a skilled lawyer, an Atticus Finch, if you will, Samuel pressured Israel to testify against the first defendant in this cosmic trial before God as witness. He essentially says, Israel, am I guilty of poor leadership? Let's examine my qualifications as a leader. There must be good reason why you want a king instead of me. So the first defendant in this trial is Samuel himself. Samuel had served as Israel's leader from his youth until his old age, and in all that long time, he served as one of the best judges ever. For as long as Samuel judged Israel, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Samuel also called Israel to put away all their foreign gods and serve the Lord exclusively. And it was clear throughout Samuel's ministry that he relied upon God to faithfully deliver the people. That's what that stone Ebenezer that we lift up, Samuel set up a stone called Ebenezer. It's the stone of help. God is your helper, he said. And then he turns to them in this sobering message and says, And now behold, the king 
walks before you, and I am old and gray. Samuel went so far as to anoint this king under God's direction, of course, that they had demanded in the first place. He had done no wrong to them in that either. He went so far as to anoint this king. Clearly, the people's rejection of Samuel had nothing to do with his ability to lead at all. And if his ability to lead was unquestionable, then Samuel's personal conduct surely must be impeachable if Israel is justified in rejecting him as their leader. So Samuel challenges the people again to find fault in his character. He says, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. In challenging Israel to testify against him, Samuel gives them ample opportunity to indict his morality and his personal life. The Lord and his anointed king would be witnesses against Samuel if the people could legitimately charge him with immorality. Then they would have good reason to demand a king instead. So, again, like an expert lawyer, Samuel provides Israel examples of ways in which he may have faltered morally in his leadership. These potential charges against himself were reflective of the violation violating the 8th, 9th, and 10th commandments. He says, Have I stolen any ox or donkey from you? Have I lied to you for unjust gain? Have I borne false testimony against you for a bribe to blind and pervert justice? Have I done anything to wrong you? And in his very heart, he asks, Have I coveted anything that belonged to anybody? And if I have, tell me and I'll give it back to you right now. How do the people respond to these charges? You've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. I think at this point, they're still kind of unaware of exactly where Samuel's going with all of this. And all the congregation of Israel, no one stepped forward to testify against him regarding his leadership or his personal integrity. And I think this is a challenge for leaders in the church today, that we must be above reproach in all our conduct as his appointed shepherds. Absolutely. We're not perfect, but we must be above reproach. And so the record is set. Samuel said, The Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. God's appointed leader, Samuel, is above reproach in all of his conduct. And he not only called Israel to spiritual purity, but he also walked the walk himself. And if he had faltered in his faithfulness to deliver them, then Israel would have ample opportunity to impugn his leadership. They would have been justified in asking for a king. But Samuel, like Atticus Finch, defending Tom Robinson, could have said, the state has not produced one iota of evidence. The defendant is not guilty, but somebody in this courtroom is. That's one of my favorite lines of that whole book. And when Gregory Peck says that in the movie, whew, man, goosebumps. They agreed with him. They said the Lord is witness. God is witness against them that his appointed leader has done nothing to warrant their demand for a king. The first piece of evidence against Israel is now set in place. Their demand for a king is not resting in the fault of Samuel's leadership. So what does that leave us? Now that Israel is on trial, Samuel calls the Lord to bear witness against them. He says, this Lord 
who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt, is going to testify against you. Samuel's leadership is impeccable, and the God who appointed him is also, has also appointed Moses and Aaron, to, who brought their forefathers out of slavery in Egypt. And in the presence of this righteous judge of all the earth, Samuel begins to work the case against Israel. He says, Now therefore, stand still, or be quiet, and listen to what I have to say to you. He says that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. That little verb, plead, in English is that legal term, that we use to describe uh, arguing a case in the court of law. The judge will ask, how does the defendant plead? Now, in Hebrew, the rendering of plead actually comes from the same verb that is used for judge or govern. And this term is actually applied to Samuel and his ministerial work and all the judges throughout the book of Judges. So this is a, a pretty recurrent word throughout the Old Testament at this point. And this term carries with it a connotation of pronouncing a sentence or judgment for or against someone. So in the presence of the Lord, Samuel tells Israel to shut up and listen as he pronounces a judgment against them in light of all the righteous deeds of God that he had done for them and their fathers before them. So beginning with Israel's salvation and deliverance from Egypt, Samuel testifies to God's faithfulness and righteousness as their ruler. Because it must be God who's on trial to Israel. If Samuel's not at fault, then God surely must be at fault that they need a human king. God had made a promise to Abraham, and his descendants would be numerous as the stars in the sky. And he swore it by his holy name and character that he would keep this promise. And he told Abraham that these offspring would be oppressed in a foreign land for 400 years. But then God himself would come to judge that nation and bring them out and put them in a promised land. And as the history of Genesis unfolds, God blessed Abraham and Isaac with Jacob and all of his 12 sons. But then time had passed, and there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob. And the Egyptians oppressed them as slaves to the king of Egypt. Samuel reminds the people that your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And at the burning bush, the Lord met with Moses in the wilderness and said to him, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so out of love and mercy holding fast to his promises to Abraham, God delivered his people from their oppressors. It is the Lord who saves, and it is the Lord who delivers his people without fail. The king of Egypt was powerless against the creator of the universe. So the evidence of God's faithfulness as Israel's king and ruler is starting to stack heavily against the people of Israel. And this especially is true in contrast to the faithlessness of Israel's forefathers. Shortly after they were saved from Egypt and planted in the promised land, they forgot the Lord their God. After they had seen and witnessed the great mighty works of God himself. And so in Samuel's judgment against Israel, 
He testifies to their historic pattern of idolatry and rebellion against God. And, recount, er, and, and so Israel's forefathers would forsake the Lord to do what was right in their own eyes. And then he would give them over to their enemies. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor and the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. God gave them over to these enemies because of their disobedience. And because of Israel's disobedience to the Lord, they were disciplined like children in order that they might repent and return to the Lord in faith. But the irony of their oppression is that the nations and kings that they wanted so desperately to be like were the very ones who were oppressing them. This should have been a painfully obvious truth to the people. But the terrible truth about sin is that we blind our eyes to the truth in pursuit of our evil desires. And graciously, the Lord disciplined those whom he loves, even Israel, and he causes them to repent. And so they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord mercifully answered their prayers. He answered their cries for help, even though they had continually and would continually abandon him. Time and again, God was gracious and sent deliverers for his people. The Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and even Samuel to deliver this people out of the hand of their enemies on every side and to live in safety. A time would fail me to tell you of all these judges that they had done in delivering Israel from their enemies. One in particular, I think, is notable besides Samuel as Jeroboam. He's better known as Gideon. And Gideon earned his name Jeroboam when he destroyed the altars of Baal in Israel. And he earned his fame when he delivered Israel out of the hand of the Midianites with just 300 guys. Because God told him 20,000 is too many. Whittle it down a little bit. And he was obedient to the Lord for that. And after an act of deliverance later on, the people wanted to make Jeroboam their king. They took him aside after years of serving. And they said, be our king. We want you to rule over us. And he said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. Why? The Lord will rule over you, he said. All these deliverers that God sent were not meant to be kings and rulers themselves, but servants of the, as appointed by God to guide Israel under the Lord who was their true king. Ultimately, these deliverers are archetypes, pictures, foreshadows of the one true deliverer of God's people, Jesus Christ. A note of application here. The pattern of forsaking the Lord from generation to generation tells us something very, very poignant about human nature. Every generation needs the gospel preached newly and freshly. Every generation. It can't be taken for granted that our children will just automatically carry the torch of the Christian faith after us. Each and every generation must learn that we are under God's just wrath against sin and that Jesus died to clear our guilt before him and that he was raised for our justification when we put our faith in him. That has to be done for every single generation. But it is so easy for us to just think of it as a cultural 
aspect or just a family generational hand down. That is not how this works. Everyone must come before God in faith, personally. And it is indisputable that the Lord had been a faithful and merciful king to a people that deserved only his just judgment. Israel's pattern of rebellion, oppression, and crying out for deliverance went on for centuries. But Samuel indicts the people for having broken this pattern. He said, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. So instead of crying out to the Lord for deliverance, they demanded a king. This is a startling contrast to the pattern of their forefathers. And Samuel was not about to let them celebrate this new king without recognizing their heinous crime. The charges against Israel have been pleaded before the righteous judge of all mankind, and the defendant is irrefutably guilty as charged. They didn't want a king because Samuel was an old, poor leader, and they didn't want a king because God had somehow failed them. They wanted a king because they wanted to rule themselves, apart from God. They coveted God's rule, and they wanted to do what was right in their own eyes, and they thought a king would help them do that. And this is why Samuel brings the coronation celebration to a screeching halt. This is not a happy celebration. In fact, Israel has crossed the point of no return in its relationship to the Lord. Remarkably, God actually allowed them to have this king in the, uh, all along, even though they demanded it with wicked motivations. So Samuel says, Behold the king you have chosen. Right here. He's standing in front of you. You asked for him. Behold, the Lord has set a king before you. Now, why would God acquiesce to their demand for a king when their desire was evil? Now, think about that for a second. I think there are two main reasons. The first reason is that God disciplines his children by giving them exactly what they asked for. They wanted a king like all the other nations so badly. Fine. You have that king. Only a few years later, Saul, the anointed king, would turn away and offer sacrifices unlawfully and fail to obey God's commandments, and he would shape up to be a king just like all the other nations in his cruelty and his raving hunger for power. And really, ultimately, this disobedient and flawed king would actually awaken the people of God to the need for a king who would not fail. Even David the Great failed at times during his reign. Because all these men were sinners who needed to deliver just like we do. So the second reason I think God gave them this king, uh, I would like to ask you a question to think about this too. Was Israel's conception, idea of a king in the first place, in and of itself wrong? We, we, can, we can establish that their motivation was wrong. Don't want God, we want to rule ourselves. But was the conception of this monarchy itself, was that itself wrong? I don't think so. If you telescope all the way back to Genesis, God had promised to the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob, that I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. He's not just looking down the corridor of time and saying, yeah, you're going to have some kings. No, he's promising them, you're going to be a mighty nation and you're going to have kings. Great and awesome kings. 
That's a promise. God set the precedent with the promise that Israel would be a great nation. And even through Moses, God set down these rules for how a king should operate when the time came later in their history. Regardless of their motivation, the king would be directed to write his own copy of the law and keep it with him, read it daily, and live according to it so that he would fear the Lord and serve faithfully. The king was not meant to be an autonomous, uh, autonomous king, a law unto himself. The king was meant to submit to God's authority as a deputy king. Again, pointing forward to the future of Christ as the anointed. Therefore, Samuel reiterated the stipulations of what life in Israel was to be like under a king. He said, no, so they were not to do what was right in their own eyes. Rather, he said, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Even with a human king, they were not rulers of themselves. The stipulation was that the monarchy must operate in the way that it was intended to operate in the first place, under God. If both the people and the king lived under the authority of God as king, all would go well with the monarchy. However, if, God, if the people and their king rebelled against the Lord, disregarding his word and the commandments, then the hand of the Lord would be against them and their king. Living as though God were not their king would not dethrone him in the slightest. On the contrary, he would and did crush them under his judgment and wrath for prolonged disobedience. Okay, I'm kind of giving away the ending of the history of Israel in the Old Testament a little bit. The Greek commentator Matthew Henry said, We mistake if we think that we can evade God's justice by shaking off his dominion. If God shall not rule us, yet he will judge us. And as a sign of God's great displeasure with Israel for their sin, Samuel says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Although God had his own purposes for the monarchy, Israel sinned in their intentions by rejecting God as their king. And God will, would display his displeasure very, very clearly. Wheat harvest in Israel was a part of their dry season. And so a thunderstorm at this time would be nothing short of a miracle. So when God sent thunder and rain in the midst of their celebration over a king, all the people feared the Lord and Samuel. It's like the, I was talking to, about this with some of the men in our Bible study yesterday. It's as if God would say, all right, you want to know how sinful you are? Right now, today, January 24th, 24th, right? I think it's 24th. Yes, okay, anyway. It's going to be 75 and sunny. And all that snow is going to melt away instantly. That's the kind of shock that they would have at the thunderstorm during this dry season. The party was over. And the display of God's anger rained down to sober the people up. They were guilty of treason and they knew it. As the righteous judge banged his gavel in the heavens with loud peals of thunder. Wake up, Israel. You're guilty. 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 
When God displayed his great power and wrath, the people of Israel repented of their evil desire for the king and, the, and, and place of God. And then they returned to the pattern of their forefathers. They asked their mediator, Samuel, to pray to the Lord for them. Pray to the Lord, to, uh, for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, and to ask for ourselves a king. And they cried out to Samuel to intercede for them, that they would be delivered from their due punishment for sinning, looking for idols and men to deliver them in place of God. Yet the repentance is a wash with a distance from God. Rather than repenting and pleading with God themselves, they reveal the distance of their hearts. Did you notice how they addressed their request? They didn't ask Samuel to pray to the Lord, our God. They said, pray to the Lord, your God. They distance themselves from being identified as God's people. Matthew Henry, Henry restates this petition from the people like this. We know not how to call him ours, but if thou hast any interest in him, improve our condition for us by praying for us, in other words. For us, in 2024, we cannot just ask godly people to pray for us while we keep a safe distance from God ourselves. We personally have to repent. We personally must come before him ourselves in confession and sincerely believe ourselves that God will be faithful to deliver us from sin and forgive us through Christ his son. And in ensuring Israel that they don't need to be afraid of dying at that particular moment, Samuel still admonishes them to serve God exclusively as their king. Do not turn aside after following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. God expects exclusive worship that is from the fullness of our hearts, every one of us, as we noted in our time of confession this morning. And yet Israel would fail at this miserably. They and their king, even just a few years later under Saul, would turn away from the Lord. It would only be later under the reign of Jesus Christ, whose Holy Spirit gives us strength, can those with faith in Christ alone serve him really truly from the heart. However, for Israel and even us today, we need to be admonished and reminded to not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Israel would still be tempted to put their trust in impotent idols that cannot save anyone. When the Ark of the Covenant was captured by Philistia, the Philistines put it before the statue of Dagon and it fell in front of this Ark, busted in pieces. That freaked them out. And they sent it back. Additionally, Israel would be tempted to put their trust in human kings and foreign nations and even going back to Egypt for help. The Lord God Almighty, he alone is able to save and deliver his people from their enemies or give them over to their enemies because of their disobedience. This isn't just an Old Testament teaching. This is true today as well. Samuel assures the people that if they don't turn aside after these empty things, it will not be for naught. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it pleased the Lord to make a people for himself. And although Israel had continually forsaken God for empty things, he was faithful to keep his promises to, to Abraham. His mercy is abundant, not because Israel deserved it, but because God's grace is, God's grace is never deserved. 
God is not obligated to show mercy to any one of us. But God's mercy is for his own glory and for his own great name's sake. He has preserved the elect because it has pleased him to be glorified in showing mercy to some. That is his divine right as your maker. And if we have received mercy through faith in Christ, it is because of his goodness, not ours. Samuel's continued prayers for Israel model God's love and mercy, even though they had rejected him as well. It is this great love and mercy God of God that ought to motivate Israel's obedience. Consider the great things he has done for you, he says. Samuel charges the people to remember the whole history of God's righteous deeds and terrible warnings to serve him faithfully in light of that. However, he says, if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. Forgetting God's mercy and great salvation invariably leads to disobedience. Living as kings unto themselves, they are warned, Israel, that this will result in God's wrath and judgment. Identification with God's people does not equate safety and salvation. Only those believing Israelites who hold fast to the promises of God and showing faith by their obedience to the word of God, would be saved. God is at liberty to bring swift judgment to both king and country who continues in wicked treason, even today, in the United States. So for you and me today, the verdict is in. We are guilty as charged before God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we sin against the Lord, we are guilty of cosmic treason. All sin is rebellion against God's rule. And when we sin, we are doing what we think is right in our own eyes. Our culture today places a high premium on doing what is right in our own eyes. We have been regularly taught that the self is supreme. We are taught to repeat creeds like treat yourself and self-love is the best love. When you think like this, who is your king? Isn't it yourself? These phrases promote an autonomy of yourself that supersedes the rule of God over our lives. And if you're trapped in this way of thinking, you need to repent. It's not a cute phrase. It's treason. Living in sin of any kind, like sexual morality, fits of anger, drunkenness, greed, Lying, stealing, and so on is all covetousness of God's rule and authority over our lives. And if you're living in sin, you are living in rebellion against God's dominion. And I pray that the Lord wakens us all today to our sins. And if he has awakened you and you realize your guilt, cry out to Christ for deliverance. Who else are you looking to for deliverance? Are you looking to politicians? Are you looking for human rulers, presidential candidates like Trump and Biden and DeSantis and fill in the blank? The government is not your savior, nor can it be. These people can't deliver you from any trouble, let alone sin and death. There is only one true deliverer, and that's Jesus Christ. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. He did this by canceling the record of our debt that stands against us with all of its legal demands. 
Your guilt is cleared in Christ. A politician can't do that with any policy. The only way to have your guilt cleared is by crying out to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. By his resurrection, we are legally declared as righteous before God when we put our trust in him. With his righteousness, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this Jesus who is crucified and resurrected, know for certain that he is, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Christ and Messiah are Greek and Hebrew terms for the title anointed one. He is the long-awaited king and deliverer, better than Saul or even David could ever be, who saves us from sin and death. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, then our response to his lordship and salvation has to be obedience. We must listen to and obey the very word of God as the directive commands of our king. His word is law, and it's the highest law in the land. Do what pleases God in service to him. This involves denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following the servant king daily. You need to submit to the authorities over you. As children, that means submitting to your parents' authority. This means being subject to the elders in the church. That means paying your taxes to the government and obeying the civil law insofar as you're not forbidden from obeying God or commanded to disobey God. Then it's okay to disobey the government because they're shirking their institution by God. Yes, even Christians are expected to be subject to Caesar. All authorities over us have been placed there by Christ the King. Our disobedience to the authorities is motivated by obedience to Jesus' authority, and disobedience to these authorities reveals a disobedience to Jesus' authority, insofar as that they are in line with what God has commanded them to do, to promote the good and restrain evil. Now, if you refuse to obey and submit to Christ, and there are some, maybe even you here sitting today, there is an aversion to an obedience to the word of God and the moral law. They deny the lordship of Jesus Christ to determine how we live our lives as Christians. And this is often done in the name of Christian love and liberty, being held to, quote-unquote, the law of love. They deny the authority of Christ over them. They deny the authority of Christ over their sexual practices, their gender choices, or even the interpretation of Scripture. But let me tell you, if Jesus is your Savior, then he is the Lord over your life. And denying his lordship and right to rule will only end in eternal punishment and hell forever. There is no tomorrow guaranteed. So if you continue in your rebellion, God's wrath and judgment await you in the end. And as we prepare to take communion together this morning, consider these things very carefully. If you are living in unrepentant sin and yet participate in this sacrament, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself for a false profession of faith. Church of Christ, Consider the righteous rule of Jesus our King and the great things God has done in saving us from sin and death. Repent of your sin. Repent of coveting God's rightful rule over your life. 
Cry out to Jesus for salvation. Serve God as your king and obey his voice and commandments. Remember God's love and undeserving mercy who gives you a heart of repentance and faith and ask yourself, who is my king? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come before your holy presence to acknowledge that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you sit upon your throne. May we, by your Holy Spirit, draw near to your throne of grace and repentance and faith and not raise tiny fists of rebellion in your face. Have mercy on us and give us a sincere desire and love to obey all that you've commanded us, not that we might earn our right standing with you, but because you have declared us right before you. And we are filled with a love and gratitude and seek to serve you all the days of our lives. Better is a day in your tents serving you than a thousand elsewhere. Amen.